6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, Dr. Chuck Missler's daily radio program connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. This series is entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. In today's study, Dr. Missler continues his session entitled, The Minor Prophets. These are all different kinds of figures of speech. I've listed here just a half a dozen of them. There's actually 200 different kinds of figures of speech cataloged in the appendix to our Cosmic Codes book. But just understand that God does use, the Holy Spirit does use rhetorical devices. And Hosea 12.10 is your authority. God uses similitudes and all the rest of these. What are similitudes? Well, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, that's a, 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 excuse me, a simile. The Good Shepherd, that's a simile. The Lily of the Valley. A root out of a dry ground, we saw. The fruitful branch. He was without form nor comeliness, yet altogether lovely. These are, in effect, the employment of similes. There are also things called types. These are more ambitious kinds of things. The Ark of the Covenant is a type of Jesus Christ. You need to understand why. Study it and find out why. The sacrifices on the brazen altar are anticipatory of Jesus Christ. The mercy seat in the sanctuary, the propitiation of Jesus Christ. The water from the rock, 1 Corinthians 10.4, Paul tells us that the water from the rock was Christ. The rock that followed them was Christ. Twice they get water from rock, and there's a whole study around that. The manna from the sky. I am the bread of life, Jesus says. I am the living water. See, these are all types of him. The brazen serpent lifted up. Makes no, no sense in Numbers 21 when you run into it there. And yet Jesus explains it to you when you get to John 3. As Moses lifted the, the serpent in the wilderness, so shall the Son of Man be lifted up. It's a type, an anticipatory type. The Akedah we study is, is the ultimate type. The Passover lamb. And, of course, the scapegoat. These are just examples. There are books that catalog types in the Bible. There are hundreds of them. Some very overt, some very subtle. Well, let's get to the book of Joel. We'll shift now. We've got, we got 12 to get through here. Yeah, he's alarmed by invasion of a plague of locusts. He talks a lot about that. And it's God's appeal. Turn ye to me, and I will restore. Basically, is the message of Joel. The day of the Lord is a key phrase in the book of, in the book of Joel. The day of Yahweh, as a rabbi might pronounce it, or Yahweh, if you will, or whatever. End of the present age and the unprecedented plagues that will associate with it. He says a lot about the army of locusts, locusts from the north. That's strange because they usually come from the south. He says they're like horsemen. That's interesting. They're like chariots. They're like men of war. I wonder why they're compared to real ones, interestingly enough. My great army, Amos and Revelation use that same term. A very key thing to understand, the locusts have no king, according to Proverbs 27, verse 30. That's going to give us a, a discovery here when we get to the book of Amos. But one of the quotes from Joel is that Peter takes that's been widely misunderstood. Because in Acts chapter 2, when the gift of the Holy Spirit is given to the church, church is born in effect, 
Some people thought they had drunk too much liquor or something, because they're all, you know, babbling in different tongues and so on. Peter quotes from Joel in his speech. He says, For these are not drunken, as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And then Peter quotes from Joel chapter 2 in Acts chapter 2. He says, And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my Spirit upon all flesh. And uh, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, and before that great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, Joel's language is pretty extreme. And yet, Peter is quoting Joel as explaining what happened in Acts 2. And some people are confused by that because, gee, where's the vapor and smoke and these wonders in heaven and earth and so forth, and the, the moon turned to blood, etc.? What he's saying is this outpouring of the Holy Spirit is started in Acts 2, and it, it'll continue in various forms right up until the day of the Lord, formally. And so this is a quote from Joel, and uh, it ties the period that we're in since Acts chapter 2 as the bridge to the big climax, which is right on the horizon. That's coming. Just as certain as it happened in Acts 2, it's going to happen it just hasn't happened yet. You follow me? This is the, Joel's, Joel's uh, expression encompasses the entire period. Let's go to Amos. He was a rustic from uh, Judea, but he also was a prophet to the northern kingdom. He's from Tekoa, which is south of Bethlehem, so he's from the southern area, from the wilderness of Judea. This is where David had his refuge from Saul and so forth. He's a layman. He's a man of the fields. He's not a trained prophet, and yet he's sent up there to Bethel, the center of calf worship and all of that. So Amos is a tough dude. Um, he, of course, focuses on the ultimate rule of David, which is not a popular message up there. He mentions a judgment against what he calls burdens, eight, eight burdens. Gaza, Tyre, Edom, Ammon, Moab. He takes the Gentiles first. He goes right around their world and takes against them. But then he turns. See, bear in mind, he's talking to the north. So he goes through all their enemies first. Oh, they're applauding. Yeah, get, let's get those guys. Goes to Gaza, Tyre, Edom, Ammon, Moab. Then he talks about Judah, the place he came from, his own, the southern kingdom. Yeah, they're still... But then he gets to Israel. That's his target. He has three sermons and five visions. And, uh, and he, but he has a, a, along the way, he makes a number of interesting comments. One of Amos 3, 7 says, surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he reveals his secret unto his servants, the prophets. That's quite a statement. That means that everything God is doing, you will find in the scripture. Surely the Lord God will do nothing but that which he reveals to his servant, the prophets. But there's also a discovery I want to share with you, because I think there's some lessons in it. In Amos chapter 7, verse 1, your English Bible is translated from Masoretic text, and it reads as follows. Thus hath the Lord God showed unto me, and behold, he formed grasshoppers in the beginning of the shooting up of the latter growth. And lo, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. Really? What does that mean? I have no idea. 
The more you study that, the less sense it makes. What on earth is going on here? Well, this is a, there's an interesting aspect here. I, I was studying this for some other reasons one night, and I chose, I looked it up in the Septuagint. It turns out one little, slight little mark in the Hebrew changes the whole complexion of the verse. In the Septuagint, this is translated as follows from the Greek version. The Lord hath shown me, and behold, a swarm of locusts were coming. And behold, one of the young devastating locusts was Gog the king. Well, this blew me away because for many years I've been troubled by Ezekiel 38 because we have this Gog and Magog thing. Magog is the people. We know who they are. Gog is obviously a title of a leader. But it's very unlike the Holy Spirit to introduce a major person without some kind of preamble, some kind of linkage. And there are no linkages to Gog that we could find earlier, you know. But here in Amos 7.1, we discover that Gog is the king of the locusts. Now, that's pretty strange because we know from Proverbs 30, verse 27, the locusts have no king. It's talking about real locusts, natural locusts. The word locust here is being used idiomatically. These locusts have a king, and Gog is the king. Now, we know this swarm of locusts were coming, and behold, one of the young devastating locusts was Gog the king. In Amos 7.1, it's talking about a herd of demons. Gog is the king of the demons, or at least a large group of them. Well, that explains a lot of things. Then we get to Ezekiel 38, Gog and Magog. Gog is a demon leader enticing all this to go on. That also explains why after the millennium, after a thousand years reign of Jesus Christ, there again is a Gog-Magog battle. Many people get confused. They see Gog and Magog in, in Revelation. They, is that, they try to tie it to Ezekiel 38. No, they're very, totally different circumstances. Magog is a people, and it may be used idiomatically of everybody rebelling at that time. Gog is a demon title. So you can understand how a demon can survive the thousand years. It's not a person, it's a title of a demon king. Anyway, we pick that up by just comparing verse with verse. So, okay. You see in Revelation 9, verse 3 and 11, it says, There came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth, and unto them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. And then down in verse 11 it says, And they had a king over them, which is the king, the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon, but in the Greek tongue hath his name Apollyon, which means destroyer, basically. But see, here again, when you study Revelation 9, you realize that these locusts are not locusts as we think of them. They're demon, because they have a, they have a demon king over them. So because the locusts have no king, according to Proverbs 30, 27. Okay, let's get on to Obadiah. He's from the southern kingdom. He argues against the enemies of Israel, the destruction of Edom, which is the traditional. Remember Esau and Edom? We went through all that in Genesis. Esau means red. Mount Seir is the south of the Dead Sea, all the way to the Gulf of Aqaba. Basra, or Petra, or Selah, is their capital. They were fierce, cruel, proud, and profane. They always cheered for Israel's enemies. If they weren't a direct enemy themselves, they would help Israel's enemies. They are the traditional enemy of Israel. Numbers 20 really hammers that. They always had an active alliance with whoever was trying to destroy Israel. So Obadiah takes after them. Their sentence, of course, will be poetic justice. They'll be extinct. Indeed they are. Uh, the uh, Nabataeans, uh, Arab, Arab tribe, uh, is uh, is, is, is where, if you visit Petra, you'll see the, you know, the tombs and all of that stuff. So see, Edom had indulged in treachery, and Edom would perish through treachery. 
And see, five years after they helped burn, raise uh, Jerusalem, that is, burn it down, they felt the yoke of Babylon. Thereupon the Nabataeans, the Arabian tribe that occupied Petra, uh, that was their capital. And then later, in about 312 BC, Antigonus, one of the generals of Alexander the Great, crushed these people and despoiled Petra. And later, the remaining Edomites uh, sustained crushing defeats from Judas Maccabeus in the Maccabean Revolt in the Hasmonean period. Josephus tells us that uh, still later, Alexander Janus uh, completed their ruin. They became absorbed in the desert tribes. Oregon in the third century AD spoke of them as a people whose name and language had perished. So Obadiah's prophecy had been fulfilled. Edom had seized a chance to rob Judah, but Edom would be robbed, and Edom indulged in violence, and Edom would perish by slaughter. Edom sought utter destruction of Israel, and they would be utterly destroyed, and it has been. Edom sought to dis dispossess Jerusalem, and Edom would be dispossessed by the remnant. Now, Edom also is a geographic location. Edom, Ammon, and Moab are what we would call today Jordan in terms of geography, but not in terms of continuing culture or anything like that. So Edom would be possessed by the remnant. Okay, so we have Esau and Jacob. Contrast to the natural man. We talked about this when we were in Genesis. You know, the, the, the uh, Esau is always, you know, the red horse, the red dragon, etc. Edom is a form of Adam or Adama or the flesh. Pride, defiance, ambition, hatred, violence, cruelty, self-deception. They're a type, in effect, of all nations that are hostile to God. Uh, Ishmael and Isaac uh, is the same nice self-life versus spiritual life. All the way through the script, whether it's Cain and Abel, or whether it's, uh, it, it, it's uh, uh, Ishmael and Isaac, it's always the natural man, the flesh versus the spirit. We've developed that as we go through slowly, but let's turn to the book of Jonah, this well-known story, the storm. Why did he flee? Why did Jonah not want to go to Nineveh? And this business of the fish, did that really happen in chapter 2? And the city, why Nineveh? What's going on there? Why, 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 why is that an issue? And why do we have chapter 4? You know, it's a great little book with three chapters. Chapter 4 is a weird one. It's mainly Jonah's up there pouting. I knew you'd save those people. Well, the reluctant prophet. There's a warning in Nineveh uh, long before. Um, later years of Joash and earlier years of Jeroboam II. Uh, Nineveh was actually a quadrangle of cities, about 60 miles in circumference, 350 miles uh, square miles, walls 100 feet high, 1,500 foot, 1,500 towers, 200 feet high, chariots three abreast could have races on their, on the, on their wall, over a million population, which was large in, <laughs> in those days. Now, is the story of Jonah and the fish true or not? Well, Jesus himself authenticates it. He speaks of that in Matthew 12 and 16. The fish and also the repentance of Nineveh. So he, he, he puts a ribbon on the whole thing. And of course, there, it did a, there are also historical equivalents. There have been people that have survived being swallowed by a whale. They've been documented. I won't go through all that here, but it's worth getting into. See, Jonah was a patriot. The one reason he didn't want to go, he didn't want Nineveh to be spared. He knew that Nineveh was an enemy of Israel. Isaiah had written prophecies about it back in chapter 7 of Isaiah. Hosea had written prophecies about it. Amos had uh, got prophecies about it. And uh, so he didn't, he, didn't want, he didn't want Nineveh spared. He wanted them to be judged by God. And God wants them to go there and tell them to repent. 
Now, I won't go through Jonah's prayer, but when you read his prayer, you can build the case that he actually died in the fish and came back to life. It's a technicality, perhaps, but there are scholars that believe he actually, that would complete the model with Jesus Christ, who died and was resurrected, and he uses Jonah as a sign. Now, whether he literally died or came close to death, that's probably a technicality, but there are scholars that would argue that he actually did die. But let's get to the real issue. Nineveh was a pagan capital of the world. They were 40 days, God had decreed, they were going to be wiped out in 40 days. They were 40 days from ground zero. And Jonah was the reluctant prophet. He didn't want to go there until God explained it to him more clearly. <laughs> Finally ends up going there. When he goes there, he doesn't give them a market research user-friendly message. He goes through town and says, 40 days and you get yours. Isn't that an appealing message? He was hoping they'd be wiped out. He was doing what God, God told him to warn him. He told him, okay, 40 days, guys, and comes destruction. You know, there are 10 miracles in the book of Jonah, but the greatest one was not the fish thing. The greatest miracle in the Old Testament is what? The repentance of Nineveh. There are 10 miracles. The storm, the selection of Jonah's guilty, was a, the sudden subsisting of the storm, the great fish, the fish was at the right place at the right time, the preservation of Jonah through the fish, the ejection safe and sound on dry land. How many whales throw up somebody on the dry land? That's pretty interesting. Then there's the whole business of the gourd and the worms and the east wind that comes in chapter 4. But the, main, the biggest miracle of them all is the repentance of the entire city of Nineveh. In 40 days. Can any nation do anything in 40 days? You've got to be kidding. But the king repented on spec. He didn't go through the town like John the Baptist, repent or else this is going to happen. He said, hey, this is going to happen. The king reasoned that just maybe if we change our ways, God may change his mind. So they did. And so did God. But it, it, it astonishes me that the king would do that on spec. The sign of Jonah. Remember the uh, Pharisees would seek a sign. You know, see the story of this bleach prophet. They speculate because of the digestive juice of he probably was bleached white. He probably was a real sight. Walking through town. Especially when you understand who they worshipped. Worship Dagon, the fish god. Now this is, of course, a sign of Jonah. Jesus himself identifies himself with it. The death and burial of Jesus Christ is modeled here as a type. Jonah is also a prophet to the Gentiles. That's interesting. Gentiles. There are a trio of prophets at the end of the northern kingdom. Elisha dies and is buried. Jonah dies and goes to Sheol and comes up uncorrupted. And Elijah ascends into heaven. That's all kind of interesting. Jonah foreshadows Israel's history. So there's also a type you can study on your own, the story of Jonah in, ter in terms of Israel. He was disobedient to the heavenly commission. He was out of his own land. He had a precarious refuge among the Gentiles that's aboard the ship. Everywhere he was a source of trouble. Yet he was still, nevertheless, witnessing to the true God. He was cast out by the Gentiles. He miraculously preserved amid their calamities. He calls on yad heh at the last part of it. And on the third day, interestingly enough, there it is again, we find some... You can study these stories and see how they are not only true historically on the one hand, but they also model prophetically some other issues. That's called a type. Let's go on to Micah. Eminent judgments declared by Micah. The Assyrians will strike at Egypt. See, Judah had foolishly relied on Egypt. The Assyrians are going to come through and wipe, e strike at Egypt by going through their backyard. 
So they'll march right through Micah's neighborhood. But the ultimate blessing will be is promised. The incarnation is alluded to here, very key verse that you're all familiar with. And the key truth of all this is the ruler is yet to come. And the present repentance is pleaded, and he talks a little bit about the last days. But the, one of the verses that everybody knows from Micah, five, Micah 5, 2. But thou Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. We could spend a week on this verse. There's all kinds of things hidden in this verse. Um, the fact that he was pre-existent, that his goings forth have been from eternal eternity past and so forth, that he's going to come forth to rule Jerusalem and Israel. That's kind of interesting. But this is pr the primary point here is it mentions the birthplace of Jesus Christ, which is, which is linked to the house of David to the book of Ruth. In any case, uh, the birthplace of Messiah. And when, when the Magi visit Herod, drive him to panic, and say, where is he that's born the king of the Jews? His scribes dig out this verse to identify the town. And indeed, you know the story from the book of Matthew. There's also an oft-quoted verse in Micah 6, 8. You'll find it hanging on many homes. He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and, uh, and what doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before thy God. That says it all. Many people look at this as a perfect, precy summary of God's requirements. To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before thy God. Let's go to Nahum. In uh, the Gospel of John, it says, No prophet come out of Galilee. Remember that? Hey, who, whoever heard of a prophet coming out of Galilee? Whoever said that hadn't read their Old Testament, because there are two prophets at least. Jonah was out of the Galilee, and so was Nahum. And both of them were out of the Galilee, and both of them to Nineveh, to the Assyrians. This is about a century after Jonah. Again, they need repentance. Nahum goes there with a message. They don't accept it, so they get wiped out. So we have the doom of Nineveh, the world's greatest city in those days. Capernaum, you've all heard of Capernaum, it's Kafir Nahum, that's the village of Nahum. That's where he came from. And its main message is that Jehovah will not acquit the wicked. It objectifies for all peoples, for all time, the governmental method of God with Gentile nations. God will forgive sin that's repented of. He will not condone sin persistent in. That says it all. God will forgive sin repented of. Not just confessed, but repented of. And He will not condone sin persisted in. And that same God rules the world today. That's why it's important. That's why these lessons have historical context. They have prophetic context. They also have personal application. Every one of them. So in the book of Nahum, it talks about Nineveh's doom is declared, described, and deserved. And the decisive test of the prediction is its fulfillment. <laughs> and it certainly was fulfilled. Do you realize that in the field of archaeology, for centuries, they didn't even believe that Nineveh existed? There was no evidence of it. Alexander went over, didn't even know it was there. It was buried. Not only lost, it was buried. It was 1849 that scholars made history by discovering Nineveh, digging it up. It's all in Iraq. In the, we, you know, the place that's called today is Iraq, but it's a. Nineveh really was buried. Let's go to Habakkuk. He's agonized, he's perplexed because of the ostensible silence, inactivity, and apparent unconcern of God. He's, he, and he, from the way he sees it, he, he doesn't understand uh, 
what's going on, and why would God use a people even more wicked than Judah themselves? He, he's talking about God is going to use the Babylonians to wipe out Judah. The Babylonians are worse than Judah. He's, he's, he's struggling with good and evil and so forth. But in this perplexity about God's apparent silence and the strangeness of God's apparent ways, he brings up some very, very interesting things. We're going to go to verse 4 in a minute. The just shall live by faith. He's going to focus on rest in the day of tribulation. But this interesting, many people don't realize how important Habakkuk 2.4 is. The just shall live by faith. This was the catchword that led to the Reformation. A guy by the name Martin Luther was a very, very diligent, committed uh, scholar and just totally disturbed by his own sin. He was really obsessed with his sinfulness. And he went through all the trappings of the medieval church, all the things that they did in those days to deal with that. And, and it was just getting worse and worse until a monk said, look at Habakkuk 2.4. And he looked at this verse, the just shall live by faith. And that caused him to wake up and to realize that you can't, no matter what you do in the flesh, it's not going to work that you live by faith, not by abusing yourself and penance or tithing or going to services regularly. All those things are of the flesh. The just shall live by faith. And when he realized what that meant, he uh, tried to post some corrections in the denomination he was part of. All they did is excommunicate him, and that led to the whole Reformation. But that was the the, the whole byword of the Reformation. It's interesting that it was all anticipated by the Apostle Paul. He writes a trilogy of epistles on this verse. The just shall live by faith. Who are the just? Paul's definitive statement of Christian doctrine, called the Book of Romans, quotes this verse as the key verse and explains justification, which is by faith alone. You've been listening to Dr. Chuck Missler, teaching through his series entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours, here on 6640. If you would like further information about materials available from Dr. Missler, please contact us through this station, or visit our website at khouse.org. Until next time, when Dr. Missler continues this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.